Attention MongoDB enthusiasts. We've got some exciting news for you. On June 22, 2023, MongoDB is bringing its world-renowned .local conference to New York City. This is an event you won't want to miss. At MongoDB.local New York City, you'll have the opportunity to learn about the latest updates and tools to build and deploy mission-critical applications at scale. Whether you're a seasoned developer or just getting started with MongoDB, there's something for everyone at this action-packed event. Get ready to experience an announcement-filled keynote. Dive into technical sessions on application development, data modeling, security, and much more. Plus, you'll have the chance to network with like-minded professionals and MongoDB experts. Don't miss this incredible opportunity to boost your MongoDB knowledge and skills. Save the date, June 22, 2023, in the heart of the Big Apple, New York City. For more information and to secure your spot, head on over to mdb.link 2023 or check out the show notes of this episode. Be sure to use the code PODCAST50 for a 50% discount on your tickets. See you there. Hi everyone, uh, this is Nicola and welcome to the MongoDB podcast. I'm a data engineer here at MongoDB working on RAM and today we're going to talk about Unity, .NET, the future of Xamarin Forms and MAUI. Welcome to the show. Today we've got Shane McAllister returning. We're going to talk about things in the Realm mobile database space. If you're wondering what Realm is, hang on, listen, don't tune out. We're going to talk about how you can seamlessly synchronize data between the mobile device and the back end. We've got Nikola Arinchev is a lead engineer here at MongoDB working in the Realm space, focusing specifically on .NET, Unity, Xamarin Forms. Stay tuned. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, did you know that MongoDB.live is scheduled for July 13th and 14th? Registration is open. This is MongoDB's biggest annual user event. Join us on July 13th and 14th for this free virtual streaming event. We'll feature a solid lineup of cutting-edge keynotes, dozens of breakout sessions, live Ask Me Anything panels, brain break activities, and so much more. Head to mongodb.com live to register and to get updates on what's in store for July. You're listening to the MongoDB Podcast. MongoDB Podcast. Exploring the world of software development, data, and all things MongoDB. And now your hosts, Michael Lynn and Nick Raboy. Hey, Shane, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you on the show again. Thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it. It's good to be back. It's been, it's been a few weeks anyway before you, since you left me the last time. Awesome. So tell us what's going on in your world and what are we talking about today? So today we're back trying to talk about one of the other Realm SDKs. We've already done a couple of podcasts on Realm in the past. We've talked about our Cocoa SDK and our Java Kotlin SDK. So we're very lucky today to be joined by Nikola Arinchev, who is the lead SDK developer for our .NET SDKs. Nikola, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And of course, we can't leave out Nick. Welcome back, our, our yes, co-host. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for including me. <laughs> right. And I left them hanging Happy there. to be here. And I'm happy to learn about uh, what we have as far as the .NET SDK goes. Yeah, this is a, a topic near and dear to your heart, right? It is. I spend uh, actually most of my week working with the .NET SDK for Realm lately. Well, I'm going to cede control of the 
the, the discussion to Shane. And why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on and, and what we're going to learn today? Yeah. So I think the, the one thing that I'd like to do, which we've done in the other SDK podcast, is to dig a little bit deeper into your background, Nicola. But first of all, as an icebreaker almost, when did you get your first mobile phone and when did you get your first smartphone? Oh, wow. That's it. It's a long time ago. Um, it certainly ages us when we answer this question. I know Mike's answer and I also know Nick's answer, which certainly ages all three on the other side of these microphones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess that would be in in high school, which if I think about it, is what is it, 15 years ago. Yeah. So in, in high school, I got, what is it, the Siemens? Siemens uh, C35, mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, it had the ability to send SMSs and it had T9, which was insane at the time. I was, I was so happy about it. Good. And, and smartphone? Yeah, about that. I threw a couple of these Symbian smartphones. Like I got a Nokia. Yeah, I forgot what number it was, but I, it had Symbian. I then got the Windows mobile phone before the Windows phone migration. That, that was... Yes. That had a touch screen and a, and a stylus and whatnot. But, but back in Bulgaria, we didn't have data at the time I got this. So, so you were very limited in what you could do with those. So the first real smartphone that I experienced the smart features of, oh, that was the iPhone 3G, which I got when I was an exchange student in Japan. And then you had unlimited data. Uh, you sent uh, Japanese people, they sent emails instead of SMSs. And that was just mind-blowing at the time. And, and all the functionality of the iPhone 3G. So it was amazing. It was. It was game-changing, I think, once you... Uh, certainly a data plan was really important. I remember we used to curate and mine our data cap on our allowances definitely but that's really interesting so back to the, the the kind of the dumb phones as we would call them is where you started and then you moved across to kind of semi-smartphones and then the iphone 3g was the first one for you so were you interested in coding and development prior to that as well too were you were you always dabbling on pcs etc yeah that's some light dabbling for sure so my dad he has he was at the time an owner of a software company it was like a small business uh they 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 were doing this software for other businesses to keep track of sales and customers uh for the local market nothing huge he he would bring stuff home uh he would uh teach me how to do simple forms uh simple applications so i i always knew how to do some things but particularly interest in that uh that my mind was <laughs> focused solely on uh, my studies. I was certain I would, have, I would do a PhD in physics and go into academia. Okay, okay. This is going down an interesting route now, Nicholas. So, so what took you to your development career then? It was my final year as in, when I was doing bachelor's studies uh, in physics. And I, I was doing quantum mechanics and, um, and starting to, do, to go into the research phase of physics, I was working with a professor at the time and everything was going pretty well, but just the pace of everything was so slow. And that, that was right about the time when uh, smartphones were booming. It was 2011, 2012, something like that. That's when you, you had these very simple apps that became like instant hits. Millions of users were starting to download mm-hmm. them, use them and talk about it. And I, I, I was, of course, playing a little bit with mobile development. I got a, an Android phone at time playing a little bit with java getting some simple apps up and it was insane how quickly you could build something from the ground up mm-hmm, upload it mm-hmm. to the app store and 
have it reach millions of people and uh, and make a meaningful change in their life. I mean, I, I don't want to bash on physics and academia by no means, but any r- meaningful research in the field of quantum mechanics uh, takes years to to get to some resolution and then decades after that to get to something practical, something that would impact people's lives. And, and yeah, I guess that was the deal breaker for me. I just didn't have the patience to, okay. to wait years. Okay. So physics loss was, was development's gain, basically, in, in your world back then. And MongoDB acquired Realm back in 2019, but you were working for Realm before the acquisition. I was, yeah. I joined 2016 after a friend and an ex-co-worker of mine uh, joined Realm. Uh, so he he promoted the company as like the best place he's ever been. And, and, huh? he, and you're he, still he was, here, right? I, I am. It, so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which, which he, did he, he promote the like, best as? Uh, was it Realm or MongoDB? Yeah. Well, it was Realm. It was prior to the acquisition. So we didn't even know that MongoDB would acquire us. And, uh, to be fair, like we before the acquisition, I was uh, a bit skeptical about uh, the MongoDB acquisition. Uh, I always viewed it as like this, almost like an enterprise. Like MongoDB compared to Realm was a huge company at the time. And I was thinking about, oh, it's going to be so bureaucratic, everything will be so slow. And uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm quite pleasantly surprised by how everything... And it is. I mean, we know in the mobile world particular, but elsewhere, any acquisition of large companies of startups usually leads to all the good stuff being chewed up and and used by the, the larger enterprise and everything else being spat out. But that's certainly not the case with Realm. And it's certainly one of the reasons why we're doing these podcasts and why we're busy in our communities is to... Let the community know that this, you know, MongoDB having acquired Realm has only given us extra resources, extra capacity to do work, and we are continually developing our SDKs. So how you've life under MongoDB has been a pleasant surprise for you then within Realm. And how, you know, what size is your team and where is your team based, Nicola? Well, one of the things that I was pleasantly surprised after the acquisition was just how hands-off the MongoDB management was uh, with regard to Realm. Like, uh, obviously, they, they're very invested in, in the success of uh, the Realm organization, but there, there was no attempt to micromanage the teams or drop requirements from the top. It was always an engineering-driven process to decide what features to work on, how to approach uh, different functionalities, different integrations. That was just great. Um, and in terms of uh, my team size, currently we are four engineers working on the, the .NET Unity SDK. And three of us are based in Denmark. It's me and Ferdinand Andrea. And in Ireland, we have Dominic, who joined just last week. Who you poached from one of the other SDK teams for a while, right? Well, it, it, it was his own decision. <laughs> I, I did not influence that. I just showed him the, the green pastures of the .NET team. And Listen, listen, we all got to try and attract the top talent, right? So look, I, I'm conscious that we have a number of episodes on Realm, but it's always good to do a really short recap of what Realm is and what it's about. Our, our listeners are, you know, they're listening to the MongoDB podcast. They know about Realm and our acquisition, but let's give them a little synopsis of, of what is Realm. Um, how does it help developers? Sure. So the TLDR is that Realm is this embedded database that you ship with your application that allows you to do stuff offline. Uh, yeah, but how it helps developers is just so many levels. For one, even this, despite the interconnectedness of the world and being able to get internet almost everywhere, uh, we still have to deal with 
crappy mobile connections, uh, people traveling by planes and or going deep into the London underground where you just don't get the 5G speeds at all. Almost all quality apps, they need to handle the offline case. They they need to allow users to interact with the application while offline. And, and RAM just makes it so easy. Unlike typical databases or like when people think about databases, they automatically think about the SQL tables, roles, and so on. And uh, and RAM is, is nothing like that. It's extremely easy to get started. Uh, you're just using your models as your entities. As you don't have to learn different languages. You don't have to continuously query the database for changes. So it has a lot of nice functionality that integrates extremely well with these fluid reactive applications that, that we are used to seeing uh, nowadays. Okay, so in, in the Realm ecosystem, we've got, as we've discussed before, four main SDKs. We've got the Cocoa SDK, the Java SDK, the JS SDK, and, and the .NET SDK. So where does it fit in, and what is the .NET SDK predominantly used for? Historically, the .NET SDK has mostly been used for Xamarin applications, and Xamarin is uh, now a company owned by Microsoft, uh, which allows you to use .NET and C-sharp to write mobile applications targeting Android and iOS and a bunch of other platforms, but obviously Android and iOS are uh, the main targets here. And their biggest selling point is uh, that they're cross-platform. You can uh, write your code once and uh, have it compiled for a bunch of different platforms and, uh, and you save on development time. So this is what we've seen, uh, the .NET SDK being used by Xamarin developers and especially bigger enterprises who are building uh, internal applications for their workforce uh, where they want to share as much code as possible. If it's, uh, sometimes it comes at the cost of native user experience that you sometimes have to sacrifice with these uh, cross-platform tools, that is not crucial for internal applications. Uh, so compared to, for example, the, the, Android, uh, the Java Kotlin SDK or the code, the .NET SDK has primarily been used in more internal applications built by larger enterprises. Okay, and I can see how that makes sense. I mean, I'm slightly biased. My past history was as an iOS developer developing with Swift. And the reason for that was I think I was developing before we had decent cross-platform tools that are out there. But, you know, tools like Xamarin, et cetera, have come on in leaps and bounds in recent years. And you're no longer confined, you know, in using those tools to leverage the native capabilities, functions, and features of the hardware devices, correct? Absolutely. I, actually, before joining RAM, I did write a couple of mobile applications, uh, including some pretty or reasonably popular ones. And I did use Xamarin for all of those. And uh, even at the time, the way they were structuring their offering, where you write code in C-sharp, but you still have access to all the native capabilities, uh, allowed you to write very fluid, uh, very well-performing native applica native looking applications. So, so, sure, sometimes it would require more coding, and uh, sometimes you wouldn't get access to all the native libraries out there. But uh, even back then, they were offering a lot. But nowadays, they shifted their focus, and uh, they, they have doubled down on this uh, Xamarin Forms paradigm where you share the UI as well as uh, application logic. And initially, that, that was a little slow, a little uh, finicky. But in recent years, it's been really good. It's, it's very feasible to write Xamarin Forms applications that are virtually indistinguishable for, from native apps. And uh, depending on how much effort you want to put in, you can get almost identical performance as native. 
which is great. I'm really excited about how Xamarin Forms will evolve over the next couple of years. Fantastic. And, you know, so I'm a bit of a novice when it comes to mobile application development. I've got experience developing mobile apps in for iOS only, you know, using the Apple tool set. So I'm curious about a couple of things, but, but before I ask my question about, about Xamarin, tell us about those apps that you developed. Are they still available? Some of them are. Some of them are not. The, the ones that I started with in, in Bulgaria, the, actually, that was the first application that I started with, and it got me hooked to mobile development. So in, in Bulgaria, I, I imagine everywhere in the world, you, you have a theoretical exam when getting your driver's license, and you have a practical exam. And uh, the questions in Bulgaria are kind of well-known in, in advance, and they just uh, pick 45 at random uh, at the actual exam. Back then, they only had this paper booklets that you could read and, and manually like write in them and answer questions and then uh, check your results and stuff like that. But they didn't have anything digital, like not even a website. So the first app that I was uh, kind of prompted to write uh, was when I was preparing for my driver's exam, I was like, yeah, that's no way to study. So I went ahead and digitalized it and made an app like similar to a booklet where you could answer questions, get immediate feedback on whether you got it right or wrong and get into this exam mode where we randomly pull 45 questions based on the official rules and, and allow you to really do all of that on your smartphone. And that is still available. That is still one of the, the more popular apps in Bulgaria, simply because everyone needs to go to take the driver's license. And the, no, I, we had a deal with the company that was publishing the, the booklets that they didn't really feel that this would be competition for them. So they were, they were like, yeah, it's free marketing. I just put our logo on the on the app and yeah, just publish it. We don't care about the proceeds. And, and that's how it had stayed. Fantastic. So so was that the most popular app that you wrote? What, no, that, that's the, the one that has the longest history and probably is the most useful one. But just before joining Ram, a friend of mine and I, we were wondering what to do with our life. And uh, and he was reading on this artificial intelligence, machine learning models were becoming more popular, more ac accessible for non-professionals. And he was reading on uh, some research related to applying the style of a painting on top of a photo. So what we did was productize this. So we spun out, we, we had a bunch of credits from, from a previous startup for cloud computing. So we didn't care about making profit or pay or uh, how much it's going to cost. So we spun up a bunch of uh, huge servers to do the computation at the, on the back end. And then we did an app where you could upload a photo, pick a painting from uh, a few pre-selected styles that we had trained machine learning models for those and have your photo edited in the style of this painting. And back then, it, it, that, that was before Apple went deep into machine learning. So computing these transformations or executing these, these models on the mobile device, it, it, it was pretty expensive and uh, pretty slow. So our app having the infinite cloud behind it to, to compute those was quite well liked by people. And we had a few hundred thousand weekly active users at the peak. Overall, it had about a million downloads and, and people were quite happy with it. Yeah, it, it, it was fun, but it, it was always like this joke of, of an app. Like it, it was completely infeasible for this to be profitable uh, or pay for its costs. The only reason why we were able to pull it off is because we just inherited some cloud credits that that were more than enough to run this. I think there's a couple of, of apps that do that today. I think Prisma yeah. is one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We launched just about at the same time as they did. And we were in kind of 
fierce competition. Oh, I, I want to call it fierce competition. Like they, <laughs> they actually had a business model, whereas we didn't. But uh, we launched it about the same time. Yeah. And they managed to come up with a revenue model around premium filters. So great. So I do want to get back to Xamarin. And I understand the benefit of developing and having access to the native device capabilities. That's powerful, especially around performance and usability for the device user. But talk to us a little bit about the other benefits of, of Xamarin and, and maybe talk a little bit about the benefit of uh, write once and deploy to multiple devices. Sure. Yeah, but that's definitely something that we utilized heavily and that allowed us to launch these apps that I, I talked about pretty quickly. Because we, of course, were targeting iOS and Android at the same time. And with Xamarin, depending on the model that you choose, there, there you can either use Xamarin Forms, which allows you to share the UI as well as the application logic, or you can go for native UI and just share the application logic. But both of these are quite powerful models where a lot of the, the meat of your app is shared. Uh, you write it once, you test it once, and then the only difference between iOS and Android would be the, the UI, how you represent your models. And especially for companies that are invested or individuals that are invested in the C-sharp.net ecosystem, the, there's this added benefit that maybe your server is written in C-sharp and uh, you can reuse a lot of your know-how, a lot of your models on the device as well, which is which is quite a bit of a time saver. At the time when we were launching that second app that I was talking about, the um, image manipulation one, it took us like about a month and a half to write it from scratch and ship it. And that is including with, including writing the server and, and deploying it. And that was possible mostly because we shared a lot of the, the code. We didn't have to use Sharp for the servers switched on the iOS application in Java or yeah, back then there was no Kotlin or it wasn't that popular uh, for the Android application. Especially if you're a smaller team, that context switching is, is a massive time sink. Yeah, being able to write once, uh, sh share your code is a massive time saver for, for mobile development. So Nicola, you touched on it there, Xamarin Forms. So for the listeners, there's Xamarin Native and Xamarin Forms. Xamarin Forms is the latest and greatest, as it were. What's the difference between the two? Z Xamarin Forms, uh, under the hood, it uses... Okay, let's start with Xamarin Native. Xamarin Native uh, <laughs> allows you to essentially call all the Swift, all the Java API that you would expect with C Sharp. So for, for example, on iOS, you have the UI table view controller. On Android, you have the list view. You have all the, the native widgets building the UI. And mm -hmm. it's up to you mm -hmm. to, and you even use uh, Interface Builder, or at least back, at, back, back in my time, you would use Interface Builder to build your UI on, on iOS, uh, set up segs and whatnot to transition between the screens. Uh, you would use XML to build your UI on, on Android. And uh, Xamarin Forms, it builds an abstraction on top of that. So for, for example, they would have one list view and depending on the platform, it would render either as a UI table view or a list view on Android. They have one button and maybe it will, and on iOS it will render as UI button, on Android it would turn, I think. I'm a bit out of touch with the, the widgets <laughs> on Android, but essentially they offer this cross-platform abstraction that renders differently on uh, different platforms and it enables you to essentially use the same ui and and it will still render using the native controls on different platforms but you have don't have to deal with the with building all of that manually and th there's a dark side to it of course and that is that sometimes android and ios they just have different 
approaches to certain user interactions. And uh, you can't really capture that very well with a shared UI. Of course, Xamarin Forms does try to do things natively as much as possible. So on Android, you have the, the tab bar at the bottom on iOS, maybe you have it at the top and, um, and stuff like that. But ultimately, if you want experience that is as native as possible, you have to do some custom logic and some platform-specific UI for even when using Xamarin Forms. Yeah, it's, it's a particular bugbear of mine. It, it happens less so these days, but I certainly remember years ago that you would find Android UX inside an, in an iPhone app or iOS UX inside in an Android app, more so iOS inside an Android because there was no gatekeeper, there was no review process. And oh, it, it would drive me crazy. But then things started to morph a little bit. So you got floating action buttons that would appear on, on both OSs and things like that. So Xamarin Forms is the place to start if you're a developer looking to get into Xamarin and, and to build cross-platform. What's MAUI then? Uh, where, where does that come in? MAUI, it's like Xamarin Forms on steroids. It's uh, like the <laughs> next version of Xamarin Forms. Uh, it, it takes all the good parts of Xamarin Forms, like all the cross-platform aspects, the native performance of the native controls and all that, and brings it to even more platforms. So Obviously, Xamarin, before being bought by Microsoft, their strategy was solely mobile. They were focusing on iOS, Android, because that was the, the big thing. And on the desktop side, they had already pretty pretty big competition in the face of Microsoft. After the acquisition, though, now they are the same company and they are no longer competing for market share. And they figured that a lot of Xamarin forms developers would like to ship their apps for desktop, but they just don't want to rewrite them macOS or for Windows or for Linux. And what what they're doing with Maui is taking Xamarin Forms and bringing it to more platforms. They, they are bringing first-party support for Windows and macOS, and there are third-party modules that allow you to compile for Linux and, uh, and Tizen and a bunch of other more esoteric platforms. But obviously, the main focus is Windows, macOS, Android, and iOS. So just just uh, to clear things up, is Maui an official like Xamarin Microsoft product, or is it a competing product that kind of is influenced by Xamarin? It it is a product that Microsoft are shipping in November. They so it's not a product as of yet, but it will be a product, and they have betas out, and people are testing it out. So it it is coming out in November, hopefully. But I, yeah, it's fully is it, supported by Microsoft. Is it going Microsoft. to be like a consolidation? Yeah. So the, as as far as I can tell, the intention is for everyone to, everyone currently using Xamarin Forms to migrate to Maui, and and that will be their flagship cross platform. So we've talked an awful lot about the .NET SDKs in relation to Xamarin, but I really want to talk about which I know Nick really wants to talk about as well. The elephant in the room is Unity and what we're doing with the .NET SDKs in the Unity space. Absolutely. Unity is, is a hot topic in the round world right now. Uh, we are very much focused on uh, bringing the .NET SDK to Unity, and we receive a lot of requests from our users to, to make it possible for them to use Realm in their Unity applications. And, and it's finally happening. I know that Nick did a few few streams using very early bits of, of the Realm SDK that was a little bit buggy, a little bit rough around the edges, but we are hard at work uh, to polish all that and, and get it in 
into the hands of users and uh, get some feedback about uh, what they like or don't like about it. I want to jump in for a second here. So this is on the topic of the stream. So back before we had the Realm SDK, or before I even knew that Nicola was working on it, I was doing game development streams with colleagues, and we were just using web requests to engage with Realm functions or Node.js applications, things like that. And then having switched over to using the Realm SDK for Unity, while the process is slightly different, it's so much easier and so much more convenient uh, to use. And I don't, Nicola, maybe I'll let you talk a little bit more about it and we can maybe discuss uh, some of the use cases and why it's so great. Sure. I mean, uh, I, I like that people are using it and that they are not entirely unhappy with it. I, I think that it, there's a lot of potential there. A lot of games currently being written for mobile are using Unity because, it, again, you get the right ones deploy everywhere uh, benefit that you get with Xamarin as well. So it's just so easy to, to write a game in Unity, distribute it to a bunch of app stores and uh, and reach millions of people. And uh, while there are some options uh, in the market, not, none of them are like really compelling or really easy to use to store your data in Unity. I, before starting to work on the, the, on the Unity project, we did research, we were browsing the Unity forums and a lot of the recommendations there were yeah, just store JSON files or HTTP requests, which I mean, it, it works. Uh, it's just not the, the most pleasant thing in the world. No, it's, it's not fast. It's not pleasant. Uh, it, it, it just doesn't feel right. It's, so yeah, that's kind of what prompted us to, to try. And, and of course, like all the, the user requests, I, I think the Unity, the Unity issue on GitHub is our most upvoted one in the .NET SDK. So, so yeah, that, that's kind of what prompted us to try and see like what well, can we compile for unity can can we make all of this work and, and it, it did work so we just had to polish it a little bit and make sure that we give people a nice experience now unity for people who aren't uh 100 in on the on the gaming uh industry spectrum here it is a cross-platform game development framework one of the more popular ones if not the most popular one and it allows you to build Great games, 3D, 2D, etc., for a variety of platforms. So Mac, Windows, Linux, Android, iOS, gaming consoles. Nicola, what is the support like for the different platforms with the Realm Unity SDK? Initially, the intention is to support Unity on all platforms that the Realm SDK currently supports, which is iOS, Android, Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. And as we see more adoption and as we see that there's traction and uh, people like using it, we are very, very much interested in shipping support for uh, all the various consoles. It's been a bit of a... I've had a hard hard time convincing my manager that we really need a PlayStation 5 to to test the SDK, (laughs) of course. But he's getting there. So we are getting the the dev kits ordered. And and yeah, we are hoping to to get to add support for these more popular uh, platforms over the the next couple of months, years. But yeah, initially it's focusing on mobile and desktop. Awesome. So do you have, uh, I mean, the, the use cases for gaming are probably a little bit different than you would see for Android and iOS specific. Do you have any kind of use cases on how people are using or will be using the Realm SDK for Unity in their games? Well, we obviously have certain things in mind. We would be very interested to see how they actually end up using the SDK. Like uh, a lot of times, 
developing something, you imagine certain things and then the community takes it in a completely different direction. And I, I think that's absolutely great. And that's part of the what's exciting about being a developer. But some of the, like the obvious use cases uh, when you have games, uh, especially single player games uh, that you want to persist their state and uh, want to make sure that the user can, can use them offline or that the user can synchronize their state between their different devices. Let's say I have an iPhone and an iPad and I was playing on my iPhone in the morning on the subway, right? And when I get home in the evening and want to chew on my iPad on the couch, I want to continue from where I left off. So achieving that with just HTTP requests, it's quite tricky when you don't have good connectivity, when you have to store certain state on the device and then make sure that it gets uploaded to the server and then download to your other devices. And, and RAM makes that few lines of code and just almost like a no-brainer. So our expectation is that initially, at least, that would be major use case for games uh, where you have a single-player game and you want to synchronize the state. And another use case that we are exploring and now want to see if, if it will be something that the community picks up is remote configuration of your games where you change something on the server that gets synchronized to all your devices uh, and that changes the behavior of your game. Maybe you want to add new levels, maybe you want to change things a little bit and having that pushed to your devices uh, with RAM and, and Sync, that just so streamlined compared to what you would have to write if you were doing it manually. So we... I, I imagine that's going to be pretty popular because I know plenty of games uh, that I play get a weapon that's like too powerful and they need to nerf it, like they need to reduce the spec of it. So being able to push that down without making everyone download updates to the client, that's going to be big. Yeah, that's, that, that is our hope. But again, we'll see how where the community takes the SDK. There are certain things, for example, that RAM doesn't do extremely well today. Let's say you want to store huge binary blobs in, in the database. You want to store your 3D models, your uh, audio. That, that works, but it's not what the database was designed for. But if if the, that's what the community wants, if that's what they are asking us for, we it, it's also a direction we are prepared to take. We've had a couple of conversations with, with users and they've expressed interest in being able to stream assets with RAM and RAM Sync. And we'll see where that goes. But I think that gaming presents a whole set of different challenges compared to compared to mobile app development. And uh, I'm just very curious to, to face them. Now, one thing that I don't think we talked about on this episode at all is around auth. So the Unity SDK, I think just like all of the other platforms, can do auth, authenticate your users directly by using the Realm SDK, right? You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Although like, Authentication is uh, typically like the boring part of any demo. Everyone assumes, yeah, yeah, uh, we have authentication, it works. Uh, the reality is it's, it's a little bit trickier where, when you have to actually implement it. Like, no, nobody wants to look at it when doing a demo, but when you have to make sure that your users receive uh, confirmation emails, two-factor authentication codes, and so on, it's, yeah, it, it's a whole different story. And, and yeah, we are taking care of all of that uh, using MongoDB RAM. We do have authentication built into the SDK. We support all sorts of different social providers, uh, username, password, and whatnot. And it's, again, like uh, with everything RAM-related, we're trying to make it as simple and uh, as streamlined as possible. So this is in beta at the moment now, Nicola? It is. Can I uh, get it if I'm interested in, in playing around with this? And, and where do I get it? It is in beta. You can absolutely get it. Like almost everything at RAM, we are 
very open about everything we're doing. I've been pushing pull requests in our open source repository. Uh, this is where you can get the packages for Unity. We do releases uh, on a regular-ish basis. And uh, you, you can just go to the GitHub releases page and along with the release notes, uh, there's a section with assets and there you can download the Unity package and install it via the Unity package manager. Okay, okay. And now that we're talking about installing and getting the packages for the .NET SDKs, where do I go to get those? How do I install them? What tools do I need as a developer looking to check it out, maybe to build a, a Xamarin app? Yeah, so uh, the .NET SDK, it's distributed via Nougat, which is the de facto package manager in the .NET world. It's built into uh, Visual Studio for Windows, Visual Studio for Mac. There's, I, I, there's plugins for literally every .NET capable or C-sharp capable ID out there. Or you can just uh, download it via the Nougat command line. And that's how you get started. Uh, you just search for Realm, install the Nougat package, and uh, that's it. Uh, no configuration necessary. Okay. And I think um, it's important, and I know because I was involved, but we there was a meetup done with yourself and your colleague, Ferdinando, back in February 24th that we now have online up on YouTube, or indeed, if you go to developer.mongodb.com, you will see the recap article about it in our developer hub as well, too. So for anybody listening who wants to learn about Xamarin and also wants to essentially see some sample code, et cetera, and hear Nicola and Ferdinando talk a bit more, please go and, and check that one out as well, too. We, I wanted to kind of, you're at the cutting edge all the time, Nicola. Where do you go to learn? How do you keep up to date with all of the changes that are coming down the tracks? Bar trying to convince your manager to get PlayStation development consoles into the office. Uh, what else, you know, how do you go to learn and what do you do? I am I'm privileged in that regard, in that my partner actually works for Microsoft, which is uh, the company making uh -huh, all, the inside all track. <laughs> uh, yeah. So she constantly bombards me with stuff that they, they're releasing and announcements and uh, articles. And overall, the Microsoft team is doing a good job at summarizing new functionalities in the, the .NET world on their blog. And uh, I, I do watch the... I, I do to watch talks more than I do like to read articles. So so I do watch all the the build talks uh, and uh, all the or like at least most of the the relevant WDC and Google Google I/O talks because those are very educational and I, they typically dive deep into the technology that that I'm interested in at least uh, on a deeper level typically than uh, than you would find on as articles or as tutorials on the internet because. Uh, those are mostly focused on getting started with the technology rather than, uh, yeah, playing with the inner workings of it. So, so definitely the build talks are extremely educational. And, and any meetups that are happening, not recently, unfortunately, but I, I was very sorry. I, I was very much present in all the C sharp meetups here in Copenhagen, and we do have quite a few of those. Yeah, and I, I think we're all looking forward to meetups happening in person again. This online world that we occupy at the moment is great, but you'll miss the, you know, the connection, the serendipity that happens in the meetup space where, where you can kind of meet new people casually and understand and, and see their problems and, and help them out a little bit. As the lead engineer on the .NET team, you know, what are the hardest challenges that you've had, say, over the 
previous six months or 12 months for, in, in terms of developing out the SDK? For me, the hardest challenge was transitioning from an engineer uh, into to a lead engineer because uh, w- when I moved to the .NET SDK, uh, that was in August last year, uh, I was the only engineer there. So I was writing the code, I was approving my PRs, I was merging them, and I, I felt like this super productive one-person one team uh, that could ship literally everything. And uh, I mean, uh, that, that's true for an, to an extent, but there's only so many hours in a day and uh, so many days in a week. So at some point, you, you just have to admit to yourself that you can't do everything. And transitioning from this person who is responsible for everything to, to being able to delegate and coach people into actually doing the work that you would otherwise do, that's been a bit hard. It's, it's a continuous process as my team is ramping up, but I, I can see now that we as a team are doing so much more than I would have been able to do by myself. So I, I can already see of this, this transition bearing fruit. Uh, I, I can see that we are moving at a faster pace than, than if it were just me. So I'm quite happy with letting go of, of this absolute control of the SDK even though it, it was hard. It was definitely something that quite a bit of self-motivation and uh, and learning. It is. That's a discipline in itself because you kind of, it is up to you to impart that knowledge to the new team and the new team members that you have and, and not get impatient when you know maybe perhaps in the back of your mind you could do it quicker. Not necessarily better, but maybe quicker or, you know, not... You nearly spend as long time explaining what you need to get done as it would take you to maybe have done it yourself. But ultimately, you're imparting that knowledge and that that handover that you have to grow that team that you have now. Yeah, absolutely. Like maybe if I'm doing a one-on-one with uh, one of my teammates, I, I'm like, oh, I could do that faster. But uh, while we are doing this one-on-one, first of all, uh, they are learning something, uh, so they they will do it faster and better the next time. But during that time, there's two other people who are actually doing work. So, so I cannot do everything they are doing. I, I just don't have the time. So it's, it's totally worth it. Great. This has been super insightful, Nicola. What, what, what's next for the Realm.NET SDKs? You touched on a few things throughout this conversation, but I think very soon we've some new data types coming up that will probably be out by the time people listen to this podcast, right? Oh, I sure hope so. Yeah, the Data Types project has been a major effort across all SDKs and across the cloud team to get out. But we feel that that's expanding the the capabilities of the SDK in a pretty unique way. So we are shipping native dictionary support, which is not something you would see in a lot of uh, databases, especially you know, those SQL-based databases where implementing a dictionary is just hard. We are also shipping set support allowing you to store a collection of unique values. And and we are shipping support for storing any value as a property of your model. Like you can, one model can store it uh, as a string, another can store it as an integer. So that, while we don't think that this is like making it, it certainly is bringing RAM a little bit closer to MongoDB, which is completely scammerless. We, we don't necessarily think that this is turning RAM into MongoDB, it's just giving people a little bit more flexibility in cases that they need it. But we still believe that having a schema on the mobile device is, uh, is valuable and prevents it prevents bugs 
And I know you mentioned earlier about Maui was November. I think you, you, I think it, I know this is none of our plans to release. That's not our product. Um, .NET 6 is around the same time, is it? Yeah, .NET 6 and Maui should be released according to plan at the same time. And uh, it's definitely something we're keeping an eye on. So r- right now, Unity is uh, our top priority. We want to get it out and uh, because it's so close to being ready. We want to start getting feedback from users. But as soon as that's out, our focus will shift to MAUI and .NET 6, support all the, the new functionality that is being announced. For example, there's a date-only data type. There's a time-only data type in .NET 6. So we expect that those something people, we want to start using from day one, and we hope to, to get support for those. We also plan to make sure that we support MAUI. We have had a great integration with Xamarin Forms. So the expectation is that we'll continue going going on with MAUI, supporting it for across all the, the platforms that MAUI will support. So so that's the, the plan for the next couple of months, maybe until the end of the Fantastic. You know, this has been a, a great discussion. I, I really appreciate your you sharing your experience around Xamarin and .NET and Unity and all the, the great things. If folks are listening and they're curious about Realm, but maybe they're not in the .NET world, maybe they're not using Unity, there are some other episodes that we want to mention. You can go on back and check episode 17, where Shane gives us a, a good overview of what Realm is, how it works in the mobile space. If you want to learn more of the history of MongoDB Realm and Realm as a company, you can check out episode 40 with Alexander Stigson, who gives a great overview of the history of, of Realm, the company. Then we go to Android with Christian Melchior in episode 45. And then 42, episode 42 with Jason Flax, where we talk about iOS and MongoDB Realm. So plenty of MongoDB Realm information to be had right here on the MongoDB podcast. Before we depart, before we close out the episode, Nicola, anything else that you want to share with the, the listeners? I just, just want to say that, as always, Realm is this open source product uh, where we engage as much as possible with the community. So if you do end up trying out Realm, if you like something or if you don't like something, let us know. We, The engineering team is monitoring the GitHub issues uh, continuously. The both engineers and DevRel are looking at our community forums. So if you want to connect with us, uh, be sure to drop us a line and uh, we'd be happy to hear from every one of you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Have a question or a suggestion for the show? Visit us in the MongoDB community forums at community.mongodb.com. Attention MongoDB enthusiasts, we've got some exciting news for you. On June 22, 2023, MongoDB is bringing its world-renowned .local conference to New York City. This is an event you won't want to miss. At MongoDB.local New York City, you'll have the opportunity to learn about the latest updates and tools to build and deploy mission-critical applications at scale. Whether you're a seasoned developer or just getting started with MongoDB, there's something for everyone at this action-packed event. Get ready to experience an announcement-filled keynote. Dive into technical sessions on application development, data modeling, security, and much more. Plus, you'll have the chance to network with like-minded professionals and MongoDB experts. Don't miss this incredible opportunity. 
to boost your MongoDB knowledge and skills. Save the date, June 22nd, 2023, in the heart of the Big Apple, New York City. For more information and to secure your spot, head on over to mdb.link 2023 or check out the show notes of this episode. Be sure to use the code PODCAST50 for a 50% discount on your tickets. See you there.